0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Today, we've got two celebrity memoirs for you that, in their own ways, deal with an illness that was hiding, you know, that had to be discovered. In a bit, we'll hear from Jennifer Lewis of Blackish fame about how being an actor, you know, being a performer masked her bipolar disorder. But first, Sema Blair has a new memoir out. It's called Mean Baby. Now, If you haven't heard, Blair was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis a few years ago. And in this interview with NPR's Rachel Martin, there are a few tender moments where Blair is really open, really vulnerable, not just about her MS, but about her addictions and about depression and suicide.
1: Selma Blair has spent a lot of her life making other people comfortable, including me.
2: Before we even begin, I'm just letting you know with the MS... You know, I'm I'm in great shape, but I still do have residual damage.
1: The actress was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2018. So when she meets new people, she prepares them for what hanging out with her looks and sounds like.
2: Some of that is the voice, as you'll notice. And sometimes if I tuck my legs in, um, my voice really clears and doesn't block so much. But a lot of times and I have spasms and it blocks and, and it's fine. I just work through it. Is it annoying to have to make other people feel comfortable about it? I make them feel too comfortable that they're like, please leave me now. I get it. (laughs) It can be so harrowing for people because not only they were uncomfortable seeing me lurch around, then I attack them, show them the 10 different ways I can lurch around. (laughs) I mean, it's just, I'm way too dramatic for this.
1: Selma Blair's new memoir is called Mean Baby, and it's the result of all the drama in her own life. There's been a lot. Loneliness, failed relationships, addiction. Just to note, this conversation does include mentions of suicide. But mainly, it is a beautiful tale about how this person learned to love a new version of herself. Selma Blair inherited a lot of her dramatic tendencies from her mother, who died in 2020. When I talked to her, she was in Michigan
2: for her mom's funeral, which was delayed because of COVID. I adored my mother. My mother was striking and brilliant and a magistrate and very critical and performative in a way. You know, it was her drama. It was her love language to be to be critical. She really valued beauty, and um, mm. you know, she wanted me to be pretty. And she raised the bar really high, and I fell short often. At one point, you write in the book, she was going through a depression, mm-hmm.
1: and you quote her as saying that the two of
2: you— could lock yourselves in the car, in the garage, if things got really bad. Yes. My mother did, you know, promise me, Selma. She said, if you, if you can't take it anymore, you tell me, and we will we can go in there and we'll seal up the doors and make sure no one's home. And, and my father would get upset when my mom would do that. But now I realized once she died that she was doing it to say, I better know so I can stop you. I realize now maybe it was so that I would go to her if I wanted to do it. Mm. She had other children. I don't believe she would have killed herself for them. I mean, my mother was dramatic and eccentric and a million things, but she would not have wanted to desert her children. Even though Selma Blair can rationalize all of that now, it was still a heavy
1: emotional burden for a child to carry. And maybe it was an escape or just the thrill of breaking the rules. But Selma started drinking when she was just seven years old. And over the years, drinking turned into a central feature of her childhood.
2: We'd have mimosas, and I'd get nice and buzzed. And there were times where my father said, "No, I, you've had enough."
1: It wasn't just mimosas; like right. You were raiding the liquor cabinet and getting blackout drunk.
2: Yes, like every weekend, blackout drunk. Are you just like
1: there by the grace of God? Go I? Like how many times yes. something really bad
2: could have happened to you? I cannot believe how reckless. I was. Now that I have a child, I would, (sighs) because I am so concerned my son will ever have a drink, but I don't want to project. What do parents do when your template for a childhood is a bit askew?
1: Her low point came several years ago when she was on vacation with her son, who was four at the time, and her son's dad, with whom she'd had a bitter custody battle
2: unbeknownst to me, I really was not an MS flare. I couldn't handle, I couldn't wake up. And you did. not We should just say, you didn't have a diagnosis at this point. I did not have a
1: diagnosis. So now looking back, you were going through MS symptoms. This is yeah. all
2: looking back, knowing that a lot of the things that I was so ashamed about that I felt so lazy or why am I so off balance? What's going on? And- One, it's hard to clarify when you're drinking. It's hard to see through the forest, through the trees. But so I'd be sober for months, and I never drank with my son. But I went to Mexico, and um, and the loneliness of realizing I'm somewhere with a man that probably doesn't like me very much right now. And I remember I ordered in front of him. I ordered, you know, a shot of tequila. And I knew, don't do this, don't do this. And I did it. And I spent those four days in my room drinking. At what point after
1: that did you get the MS diagnosis?
2: About four years. Hmm. And I was sober immediately. I've never had a drink since. What was it like to not have that
1: answer, to kind of live in that in-between of, okay, it's not the addiction because
2: I've dealt with that. I was confused and I thought, oh my God, I must be more depressed than I think. I don't know. I don't know what this is. And to get a diagnosis was like, okay, okay, now you can move again. There was a name. It's amazing what words can do. People yes. are like, oh, labels so destructive. One label so destructive, calling me manic depressive, or this and that, that maybe, you know, I made self-fulfilling. But then another label, something like MS, that I had never heard of even. I for me. Like I never, for in mm. all my groping around for answers and clues, I'd always looked to depression. I should have been a bigger hypochondriac. I never <laughs> thought anything would ever physically be wrong with me.
1: Her symptoms got more intense, and ultimately, Selma and her doctors decided that the best course of treatment was a stem cell transplant. She says she improved immediately afterwards. Um, The picture included in this part of the book. Here, I'll hold it up so you can... Okay.
2: Oh, yes. It's you. That is me with my son, and that, I was actually very sick there. That was after we harvested my bone marrow. I love this
1: picture though because I love it too. I mean you you just have like a skiff of hair. You've lost your hair, but yeah, and you look very tired. But I don't know, there's a lot of strength in your expression.
2: Thank you. I grew wiser. I grew wiser, and I think when you do have so much suffering for a moment and people help you, it is so healing to have those people. I mean, that's a whole other book about what people do that come into your lives that you don't know, that heal you. And I can I hope to continue writing. I hope that I'll find more things, and I hope uh-huh. someone would read it, maybe like you did, and say, oh, I get it. That's what I hope, and it's never too late to, to get control of things. The book is called Mean Baby
1: by Selma Blair, a memoir of growing up. Selma, it has been... Such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for making time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you or someone you know is struggling, please call the suicide hotline, 800-273-8255.
0: The ABC sitcom Blackish ended its eight-season run earlier this year, but it's pretty much guaranteed to have a long-lasting effect on the TV landscape. Back in 2017, Jennifer Lewis, who plays the grandmother Ruby on the show, talked to NPR about her book, The Mother of Black Hollywood. And there's this kind of funny moment in the interview when former NPR host Noelle King asks why she named her memoir that. And Lewis responds with just this great smirk in her voice, because I am.
3: (laughs) Some artists are larger than life and some are even bigger still. Actress, singer, and comedian Jennifer Lewis stars in the hit ABC show Blackish as the irascible and hilarious grandmother Ruby Johnson. Jennifer's career spans decades in film, television, and theater. She's worked with the biggest names in Hollywood and on Broadway, and along the way, she has become one. Jennifer's written a new book called The Mother of Black Hollywood. It comes out next week, and Jennifer joins us from NPR West in Culver City. Jennifer,
4: thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure, Noelle. Thank you. So you have had one heck of a life. Girl, I have lived. That's all <laughs> I can tell you. It really has been an amazing life. You know, I started in a poverty-stricken area on the outskirts of St. Louis, Missouri, in a small town called Kinlock, And I sang my first solo in church, and I, the reaction of the congregation, you know, I just stood there with my thumb in my mouth thinking, wow, this is life and i haven't looked back since
3: even even in your early days you had something propelling you uh, you write that when you graduated from college in missouri you set your sights on new york like a lot of young actresses mm-hmm. And I feel like I've heard a lot of these stories, and they usually involve someone showing up on a Greyhound bus with $3 in her pocket. You didn't do that. You booked yourself a first-class airline flight.
4: <laughs> I, I had taken a few trips to New York while in college to visit my boyfriend. And when I said, okay, I'm leaving for New York, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go first class. And, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a pot to piss in. But I got up there because I felt that's where I belonged. And I landed in New York with 10,000 songs in my heart, and I wanted to sing every one of them.
3: And you were a complete unknown, but
4: you made it to Broadway relatively quickly. 11 days, Noel. 11 days. <laughs> de- I'm telling you, I called my mother a week before and I was sobbing. I was like, Mama, this city is so big, and everybody wants to be a star. I'm going to come home. It's too hard. 11 days later, I was like, oh, come on, let's go. How'd you pull that off? Well, I auditioned with an Ethel Merman song because, you know, I have one of these big voices. Mm -hmm. And and when I sang at the audition, I did a back bend uh, and held the last note, you know, for me and for you. And I just kept you kept going back. You kept going back. (laughs) You and the piano player was like, oh, my God, when is she going to end this song? But I was a meteorite when I hit New York. I had no fear in me because the dream was so embedded. And I'm not going to lie to you. I had been gifted at birth, girl. I knew what I wanted to do. It was simple as that. And I'm one of the lucky ones. Don't think I take this for granted. I'm one of the lucky ones to, to have known what I wanted so young. You know. To have known what you wanted and then gone for it
3: and then succeeded at it. And, and it makes it almost, the way we're talking, it makes it almost sound easy. But in the book, you also talk about your early years in musical theater on Broadway
4: and off-Broadway. Absolutely, And they weren't all mm-hmm. easy. No, they, it was not easy. I, uh, I was bipolar and did not know it. I looked at my shrink. I was like, are you insane? You know, what do what you people got a name for it? I've been like this all my life. You thought it was just part of being an actress. Absolutely. And and so many artists uh, hide that mental illness in performing and we're applauded for that kind of energy. Uh, tell me the story of, of how you got your diagnosis. Well, my first session, Noel, I promise you, I did a headstand. I sat on the back of the sofa and I was like, Listen, I want to know, talk about my career. You know, I didn't want to talk about my father dying. I didn't want to talk about the AIDS epidemic. I didn't want to talk about my abusive childhood. I wanted to talk about my career. Not the things that were really hurting you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when she said depression, now I understood that because I pretty much cried myself to sleep, you know, most of my life. So I just figured everybody cried. I didn't think they cried Hmm. as much as I did. But, you know, what's wrong with crying? But when she started talking about mania, I was like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm an actress. But um, it fit every aspect of my being, everything she described. So I could not deny it. And I didn't.
3: And then in the 90s, when you start to get help, something interesting happens. You write in your book that at the same time you're going through therapy, you're confronting your demons, mm-hmm. you get a foot in the door in Hollywood. You start appearing in movies like yeah. The Preacher's Wife and right. Poetic Justice. You've had an extraordinary career thus far. You are currently starring in one of the biggest hit shows on television, Blackish. Uh, that show is so funny and so irreverent and so biting, and it's attracted such a following. When you took that role, did you know this show was going to work as
4: well as it does? And and what do you think it is that actually makes it work so well? You know, when they called me, uh, you know, I think I was in Athens somewhere on a yacht, you know, and they said it's a show called Blackish. I said Blackish, and they said, well, yeah, they want you to come on back to the states, and I said, well, Blackish better have some greenish. the show itself what a cherry on the top of my career i am so proud of this show because you know there's so much trash on tv let's face it but blackish is tackling all of those those these modern day issues and the writing is amazing that first, uh, the season opener, uh, the subject matter was Juneteenth.
3: Yes, there's an episode about Juneteenth, the, the day, uh, the day in which the slaves were freed, and how we don't acknowledge that in this country most often. You guys talked about reparations. Absolutely. You talked about
4: postpartum depression. Absolutely, the N word. They have addressed a police brutality, and always with humor. Oh, always my with God. humor. Listen. When you sit in front of your television and watch Blackish, when you get to the dinner table, I assure you, nobody's going to be silent. They're going to discuss these issues. We're doing something great with this show, and I am amazed to be a part of it.
3: The title of your book is The Mother of Black Hollywood. Of all the things you could have called your memoir, why that?
4: Well, because. I am. <laughs> you know, I play Tupac's mama, Tina Turner's mama, Whitney Houston's mama, and the list goes on and on. And if I, Gabriel Union's uh, mother-in-law, and the movie What's Love Got to Do With It started uh, uh, my career as a mother. And you know, like I say in the book, <laughs> for that kind of money, I'll play the daddy. <laughs> hey, you know. But here's the thing, Noel, I did become a mother. And my daughter is sitting right here next to me. Her name is Charmaine. When I entered therapy, a group of African-American women suggested to me, uh, they were very close to me, we were called The Boat. It was just a little club where we would all come together and talk about our feelings and their children and their professions. And they all suggested, plus my therapist, that I go and mentor a child. And I joined the Big Sister Big Brother program and I got this little girl. She was seven years old, and um, she was under a desk when I walked into the YMCA to meet her, and I kind of wanted to just climb under there with her, but I had done enough work in therapy to reach my hand out to her, and she came out from under the desk, and I have loved her. I was a big sister for five years, and then... um, when she turned 12, I believe, her mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So I looked at her, I said, I don't know anything about being a mother, baby. But, you know, I have the finances to give you the best education. And it's one thing, if I, if I don't know anything else, I know that I love you. So come on and I'll do my best. And we must, have been, we must have done pretty damn good because she's sitting next to me right now. But it wasn't easy. <laughs> it wasn't easy. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you, Noelle.
0: And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org newsletter books. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The podcast is produced by Miranda Mazariegos and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Elena Burnett, Justine Kennan, Lena Mohammed, Robert Baldwin III, Tinbi Ermias, Janaki Mehta, Patrick Jaranwatanan, Hiba Ahmad, Hadil Al Salji, Phil Harrell, Rina Advani, Liz Baker, Kenya Young, and Lucy Perkins. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.